Africa. Welcome to Daybreak Africa from the Voice of America. I'm James Barty in Washington. Today is Wednesday, August 17th, and here are some of the stories we are covering. Raila Odinga rejects the results of Kenya's presidential elections. The figures announced by Mr. Shibukati are null and void and must be quashed by a court of law. In our view, there's neither a legally and validly declared winner nor a president-elect. We'll speak with a governance analyst on the legal implications. Nigeria's inflation hits 17-year high as food prices soar. President Wea of Liberia suspends three officials sanctioned by the U.S. for alleged public corruption. majority of the people believe that the president should have outright dismissed the officials. Overall, people are not very happy. And the first U.N. World Food Program vessel loaded with wheat has left Ukraine for Djibouti. Those stories and more are coming up on Daybreak Africa. The runner-up in Kenya's just-concluded presidential election has rejected the result, saying the announcement of the winner was illegal. Raila Odinga cited a split in the Electoral Commission and the chairman's failure to explain how he came up with the final numbers. Mohammed Yusuf reports from Nairobi. Addressing elected governors, members of parliament and politicians allied to his Azimio coalition, Raila Odinga on Tuesday rejected the presidential results. The figures announced by Mr. Shibukati are null and void and must be quashed by a court of law. In our view, there's neither a legally and validly declared winner nor a president-elect. <laughs> Mr. Chibukati's announcement purporting to announce a winner is a nullity. Odinga said the head of the Electoral Commission, Wafula Chibukati, did not follow the constitution and electoral law when declaring the winner. Chebukati on Monday declared William Ruto as Kenya's president-elect, saying Ruto won 7.1 million votes, while Odinga got 6.9 million. The chair's decision to announce the winner over the objections angered the majority of the commissioners, including his deputy. The vice-chair of the commission, Juliana Cherera, said Tuesday the tallying process was not transparent. The tallying phase, as I said yesterday, that at the end, that those opaqueness, things were not being shown to the public. You've been there even at Bomas. And the screens are supposed to show cumulative numbers of the presidential candidates' votes as they garnered as we continued to read the results, isn't it? The same was not displayed to the public, and the same was not given to the commissioners. Just like the public was not aware. Cherera said the numbers did not add up. This summation gives us a total of 100.01%. The 0.01% translates to approximately 142,000 votes which will make a significant difference if in the final result. We therefore decline to take ownership of the said results because the aggregation 
resulted in a total exceeding the percentage of 100, which cast doubt on the accuracy of the source of the figures. It was not clear if Cherera misspoke as 0.01% will translate to only 1,420 votes. The election dispute has raised fears Kenya may see violence of the kind that has happened after other elections. On Monday, the body of election presiding officer who went missing last week was found in Kijiado County. Odinga on Tuesday called for calm and said his team will go through legal means to address their dissatisfaction with the election outcome. I want to commend our supporters for remaining calm and keeping the peace and urge them to continue to do so. Let no one take the law into their own hands. We are pursuing constitutional and lawful channels and processes to invalidate Mr. Chibukati's illegal and unconstitutional pronouncement. We are certain that justice will prevail. Odinga has until Sunday to lodge his case at the Supreme Court, which could take up to two weeks to give a final verdict. Last week's election was the former Prime Minister's fifth attempt to win the presidency. Mohamed Yusuf for VA News, Nairobi. Raila Odinga, a main contender in Kenya's August 9th election, has rejected the results which declared Deputy President William Ruto as president-elect. Odinga said Tuesday that the results were null and void and should be thrown out by the courts. This, as world leaders, including many from Africa, have been congratulating Ruto for his victory. Gabriel Mutuma is a policy and governance analyst expert. He tells me that Odinga has a constitutional right to take his case to the courts. That is the most constitutional and the right thing to do for the country as far as peace is concerned. And so many people actually have commended him for that. As far as uh, winning or not winning, that is up to the Supreme Court judges to come out with that verdict. Odinga makes reference to the fact that uh, a number of the IEBC members dissented from Chairman Chibukati's decision declaring Ruto the winner. I want you to please explain to our listeners how does the IEBC arrive at decisions after an election? Is it by majority rule? Yeah, thank you. Now, as far as the four commissioners who have offered their dissenting voice, honestly, James, I've looked at the Electoral Act, and nowhere did I find that the chairman of the electoral body, who is Wafula Chibukati, there's nowhere where it is written that he has to seek concurrence with the rest of the members of the IEBC. So I think as long as he acts within the law, which he has at this point, we have to be correct and use the best logic to ascertain that, indeed, there is nowhere within the law. Personally, I haven't seen any, and I and, and probably this, uh, the legal uh, fraternity may be able to take this word, but personally, I have not seen anywhere where it is written that he has to seek concurrence with any member of his team. So did he act within the law? I think Tebukati acted within the law to uh, going ahead and uh, issuing the certificate to the person who had actually won that election. 
If he goes to court, this would not be the first time that Odinga has gone to court after the election. I'm talking about the 2017 election. So again, speak to what happened in 2017 for our listeners. When that was done, I think there were several processes in 2017 that did not see tried with the Supreme Court judges. And if you can remember, that election was nullified and a repeat was ordered to be done within 60 days. So I, I, I think um, it is now very clear to those that uh, have been able to come and vote in the 2022 elections to have realized that everything was out in the open. The Form 34As, which was decided constitutionally that they would be the final arbiter or the results that are announced at the polling station will be final. Chairman Chibokati made it very clear that immediately after the voting, they were stippled out in each and every polling station and everybody was free to go and be able to analyze them. So I think on that one, we need to figure out all other processes that have happened, whether they have been within the parentheses of what you call a legal way of doing things. And uh, I think in my own view, Chebukati has really tried to put things into perspective. As we go to the Supreme Court, which I believe the Honorable Raila Odinga will be heading there any time from now, we, 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 will, we will sit back and, and, and see what kind of evidence is induced in court. But as you said, the elections back in 2017, rather, uh, we did not have a space where people knew what was happening in the back end. But this time, everything was actually out in the IEBC portal, and people were able to compute and come up with figures. And if you look at the figures that everybody has come up with, they are nearly almost going head-to-head with each other. Gabriel Mutuma is a policy and governance analyst expert. You are speaking with us from the Kenyan capital, Nairobi. Nigerian authorities say the country's inflation rate jumped to nearly 20% in July compared to last year, the highest in nearly two decades. Consumers in Africa's biggest economy are struggling to keep up with rising prices for basic foods. Timothy Obiezu looks at what's causing the high cost in this report from Abuja. Nigeria's National Bureau of Statistics, NBS, said Monday the country's inflation rate in July was 19.64%, the highest rate since September 2005. The NBS report found the highest increases were for necessities like food, fuel, transportation and clothing. Food prices have risen steadily in Nigeria for years due to the effects of climate change the COVID-19 pandemic, and widespread insecurity. But in February, when Russia invaded Ukraine, commodity prices soared, affecting the ability of millions of citizens to meet their basic needs. Abuja resident James Oshur earns about $50 a month from his sales job, but says his salary can no longer cushion economic pressures. There's a lot of challenges now in the Increment of prices. I cannot even talk of going to the market now to even buy something to feed because the prices are not encouraging at all. The bread that we to buy then of 350 now 1,000 plus. Even some of the bakers in Abuja are not even working because of the high price. In a bid to address inflation, Nigeria's central bank has been tightening monetary policy by increasing interest rate from 11% in January to 14% in July. Akintunde Ogunshola, the founder of an Abuja-based financial consulting firm, explains the reason for the CBN's policy. 
What's happening is that we have too much money in circulation chasing few goods, and that's what uh, causes inflation. There is scarcity in supply, and that's why CBN is using the um, open market operation to reduce the money in circulation by increasing interest rates so that people will be saving money back into the bank, like mopping up money uh, from the economy. Nigeria's import-dependent economy has been further hit by currency devaluation. The Naira has lost more than 30% of its value in seven months. But Ogunshola says the inflation problem is a global problem. It's not only in Nigeria alone that we're experiencing this. The United States inflation is also going up. Even our neighbors, Ghana, their inflation rate is already over 30%. In March, the World Bank estimated 4 out of 10 Nigerians, or about 40% of citizens, live below the national poverty line. Experts predict the inflation rate will increase further in coming months and may put many more Nigerians on the brink of poverty. Timothy Obiezu for VOA News, Abuja, Nigeria. Listening to Daybreak Africa on the Voice of America. I'm James Butte in Washington. Today is Wednesday, August 17th. Liberian President George Weah has suspended three senior officials sanctioned by the U.S. government for their involvement in numerous counts of alleged public corruption. A statement issued Monday said Weah views the allegations as serious and that the suspension will remain in effect pending investigation. The president also named the principal deputies of the suspended officials to act in their absence. The three officials are Minister of State for Presidential Affairs, Nathan McGill, Sema Sirenio Cephas, Solicitor General and Chief Prosecutor, and Bill Twawe, Managing Director of the National Port Authority. In a statement on Monday, the U.S. Treasury Department's Office of Foreign Assets Control said that through their corruption, the three officials have undermined democracy in Liberia for their own personal benefit. In the capital, Monrovia, residents have been reacting to the news. On the line from Monrovia is Rodney Sia, editor-in-chief and publisher of Liberia's front-page Africa newspaper. He said many are disappointed by the government's decision not to fire the three officials. The reaction has been very mixed. majority of the people believe that the president should have outright dismissed the officials. When we posted on our website, this an executive mansion also posted the suspension announcement on the website. And most of the commenters there have been calling for dismissal. Some of them are saying that while they, they hailed the president for the move, they think that a dismissal would have gone a long way in sending a message that the we administration were in tune with the message they were trying to send to him. Um, but overall, people are not really happy. Some are happy, but some are not really happy with the way things are going in the country. What do you suppose the government or President Weir did not or is hesitant to take an action or to fire these officials? Well, James, you have to understand um, the president is in a tight spot. First of all, Nathaniel McGill, the Minister of State for Presidential Affairs, is the president's most trusted ally. He's been at the forefront of most of the president's activities. Uh, most of the things that happen in the country, the president delegates it to him to perform. And so people say he's the most trusted ally to the president. Um, the head of the National Port Authority, Bill Twerwe, 
In fact, his middle name is Behube Jr. That's the unofficial middle name because people refer to him as the president's unofficial son. The Solicitor General, Simeon Cephas, have been very, very involved in a number of controversial cases that people believe that the government may or may not have been behind. So all of these people are people with close access to the presidency. And so the president is perhaps unsure what his next step will be. The statement issued by the government or by President Weah's office says that the government will launch an investigation. How are they going to go about investigating? What are they going to investigate? Well, Jim, this is one of the things that people are concerned about, about and making quarrels about, because in the absence of an official call on the justice minister to launch an investigation, there's not much the public can take from Yes, you're suspending these people, but what's the next step? In the past, there have been incidents where people were suspended and investigations were done. And after a few weeks or months, those people or persons were brought back to work. So that's the debate now in the country. People are not sure whether the president would order an investigation into these, these officials because these charges are very, very damning. The U.S. Treasury Department was very specific in relating to the number of allegations based on thorough investigation by the U.S. Treasury Department that these people were involved in massive corruption that were depriving poorest of the poor in Liberia. And so they needed to make sure that a strong message was sent to President George Weah on this issue. Rodney, all this is coming as President Weah prepares to come to the United States, I think, uh, in September. What do you think this means? Well, it's definitely a deflated point for the president. People were expecting him to be on a high, necessarily in the fact that President Joe Biden invited him to this Africa summit in December. And also he's coming for the UN General Assembly meeting in September. So he was on a high note that the Americans were finally opening up to his government. But the sanctions issued Monday deflated whatever momentum the president was riding on in terms of the international community. Mind you, we have elections coming up next year, and these elections are very crucial to Liberia's continuing quest to transition from one democratic government to the next. So America is a very strong ally to Liberia. The ambassador said Monday that he hoped that the president did the right thing in terms of dealing with this issue. Uh, the fact that he's going on these trips coming up shows that he has to be very careful how he proceeds because the Americans are pretty much on top of what's going on in Liberia with these sanctions and these investigations. Rodney, thank you so much again for bringing us up to date. Thank you, James. Rodney C.A. is the editor-in-chief and publisher of Liberia's front-page Africa newspaper. You are speaking with me from the Liberian capital, Monrovia. The first U.N. World Food Program vessel loaded with wheat left Ukraine on Tuesday and is headed to Djibouti. Marie-Anne Ward, the Deputy Emergency Coordinator of the World Food Program in Ukraine, tells viewers Caravan Dam the ship is carrying 23,000 metric tons of wheat grain, which will go to the WFP's humanitarian response in the Horn of Africa, one of the world's hardest-hit areas in this year's global food crisis. It is leaving the Odessa port of Pivdeny, which is one of the three Odessa ports. And this is actually the first ship to leave that particular port. And then we're very pleased that it's a humanitarian ship leading the way. And it is on its way to Djibouti, where the cargo will then be transshipped to Ethiopia for our operations there. So it'll take about two weeks for it to arrive.
Once it gets to Ethiopia, then, then where does it go? Because it's not just Ethiopia that obviously is suffering in the Horn of Africa. Well, that particular shipment is only for Ethiopia. There will be more shipments. Um, we hope one, that's the first of many, to, of course, go to other um, ports in the Horn of Africa and then, of course, the Middle East and, and other places because, you know, Ukraine's agricultural bounty fed 400 million people across the world last year. So there are lots of places that need the food of Ukraine. If you would step back a little and tell me what it was like to be right next to that ship. I saw the video of you as the ship was being loaded and there you were and uh, seeing the ship off. What was that like? I mean, really, the biggest emotion was just joy to see a ship leaving that port for the first time in six months. You know, it's it's a port that's been closed, even though they were, you know, supporting the employees and everything. We weren't really quite sure when they you know, and they flipped the switch if all systems would really be go, but they really were. So, you know, watching the grain just flow into the holds and and watching, you know, the sailors getting everything ready to move. It was just like, you know, normal operations, which is really what we need is normal operations. And again, I just think um really, really proud that it was a humanitarian ship to get that particular port up and moving and functional again. How many countries are facing acute food insecurity now and how many countries are at the threshold of famine? I mean, technically, we've got about 20 countries right now across the globe that are on what we would call the famine watch list. So that is just an incredibly, probably a record number of countries around the globe. So are most of those countries in Africa? I would say probably, but certainly countries, you know, in the Middle East and elsewhere that are undergoing, you know, crises such in Yemen, Afghanistan, it, it's, it, it takes a lot of things to cause a famine. And unfortunately, many countries are, are teetering on the brink right now. That was Marie Ann Ward, Deputy Emergency Coordinator of the World Food Program in Ukraine. She was speaking Tuesday with my colleague, Kara Van Dam from Kiev. A controversial resettlement and land distribution effort is drawing protests in a contested part of northern Ethiopia. Reporter Henry Wilkins recently got rare access to Maikadra, a town in the disputed area, and spoke to ethnic Tigrayans who say they are being forced from the area. He also spoke with ethnic Amharas who say they are being neglected in favor of the new arrivals from the same ethnic group. He files this report. The state-funded Ethiopian Human Rights Commission, or EHRC, in Addis Ababa recently told VOA it may investigate claims that land is being redistributed unlawfully in the disputed region of western Tigray. Tarakua Getachu is the Director of Law and Policy at EHRC. If these claims are verified, they're certainly, definitely uh, very concerning to, to the Ethiopian Human Rights Commission. And uh, we, will, uh, we will monitor and uh, investigate, yes. According to a Reuters report published in June 2021, Amhara regional authorities were encouraging ethnic Amharas to move into Maikadra, an area that has been administrated by the Tigray region for decades. The report also said Tigrayans were being illegally forced off their land as part of an effort to move ethnic Amharas into the disputed land, adding to rights groups' concerns of ethnic cleansing. In the view of Amhara authorities, they are writing a historical wrong. Amhara regional officials say 500,000 ethnic Amharas were forced off their land across the western Tigray region during the 30 years that the Tigray People's Liberation Front dominated Ethiopia's national government, ending in 2018. 
VOA cannot independently verify that claim. Since the report last year, Amhara officials have been reluctant to give information on the scale of the plan to settle ethnic Amharas in the land previously inhabited by Tigrayans. Some told VOA in May, however, that ethnic Amharas continue to move into the disputed land. Ethnic Tigrayans are not the only ones impacted by the land distribution, residents say. Given rare access to Mykadra, a town in western Tigray, VOA found a protest organised by ethnic Amharas against new arrivals from the same ethnic group. Protesters say that while the newcomers are being given land, they are getting nothing. Although VOA was advised not to film the protest, one demonstrator spoke on the condition his identity be hidden. He said he felt compelled to go out to protest to ask for land as he claims to be one of those left behind after the massacre and needs to till land to feed himself. Henry Wilkins for VOA News, Mykadra, Ethiopia. And that's it for this Wednesday, August 17th edition of Daybreak Africa. We thank you for joining us this morning. For more African news and features, visit our website at voaafrica.com. Connect with us on all social media platforms. On behalf of the Daybreak Africa crew, I'm James Bond.